We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labour pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Great to be with you, sharing in ministry. Um, I'm a child of the 60s, actually born in 1959, so uh, 64, you don't need to work it out. Uh, growing up, with my parents, uh, who uh, certainly later, uh, early in my teenage years, were very keen Christians, and they had their friends, and they were focused on encouraging each other in faith, having a sense of reaching out to the community uh, with the good news of Jesus. Uh, nothing dramatic in all of that, but uh, I can remember many conversations that my parents would have over meals as they got together with their fellow Christians, and I would be sitting at the table, and an emerging consistent topic that they would get round to at some point was the second coming of Jesus. Now, I was around about 12 to 14 at the time, and I would listen on these conversations, and they would make comments like, we will never see the year 2000, uh, and, and things like that. Now, I wish I was a little bit more spiritually minded, but at 12, 14, I'm saying in my head, um, no, not yet. I want to enjoy life. And so, as they're talking about the fact Jesus is coming soon, I'm thinking, uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, I was pr professing to love Jesus, but still was that moment of hanging on to what we've got and just enjoy the moment that we're living in. So, the times and the moment influenced and convinced them that the king was coming. And it was the spirit of the day, I think. Now, we fast forward to 2023, 
And it might be said that we become a little bit settled in our outlooks and in our attitudes. Of course, there is always a tension between enjoying the world that God has given us uh, as uh, we experience what we have, and we know that in Christ. That tension then with having that, but also looking forward to the day of Christ's return. Well, Paul is writing to a church at Thessalonica, and they're certainly concerned about the coming of Jesus. Paul will have received information from Timothy. He responds to that information, and he wants to speak now in in this narrative that was read to us on the second coming of King Jesus. He's already spoken of uh, these things, or hinted at them at the very least. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 10, he says, you are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Uh, Similarly, chapter 2, verse uh, 19, uh, we read there, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And then chapter 3 and uh, verse 13, uh, we also read that uh, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So clearly he's already indicated some elements that they're waiting for Jesus to come again. And so now he begins to unpack that a little bit further Uh, It seems that there might have been a few questions at Thessalonica, or maybe even uh, some degree of confusion at the events surrounding the coming of Jesus. And so Paul wants to speak into that. But the big main point of this section, I think, can be seen for us, and you'll see that, I I think, in verse 18 of chapter 4, uh, and then verse 11 of chapter 5, and where we read verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. And similarly, in verse 11 of chapter 5, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Whatever the takeaway point for the church at Thessalonica, and whatever our takeaway point is this morning, what the ministry that we're hearing from the Apostle Paul is designed to encourage each other, to give each other hope. And so I've kind of themed uh, our sermon today, Hope and Glory, because that's what is being presented to these people with their questions, with their confusion, and maybe with their concerns. Paul wants to highlight the glory of the gospel, the wonder of Christ, and all that has been promised in him, uh, so that they may uh, know that in their lives. It will have a practical outworking in the marketplace when they go there, but it will have effect and influence. So we want to kind of uh, think about a couple of things this morning. And the first thing is in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and that is hope in the future. Hope in the future. In 1999, we had uh, in the UK a full solar eclipse. It was apparently not to be missed. We'd just moved to Liverpool. You could employ various techniques at the time to look at the sun in safety. I guess it was not to be missed because the next uh, full UK uh, solar eclipse will be in 2090, so not many of us will be around for that one. 
So an event not to be missed, and we were in the town at the time, and we were able to see, uh, and it was a remarkable moment. Here the people in this church are concerned that the biggest event ever, that is the coming of Jesus, will be missed by those who have already died. Will they be at a disadvantage when Christ the King comes? They've died. They're not going to see it. Jesus comes now, we're going to see it, was their thinking. So will they miss out on the biggest event that anyone will ever witness? And it will be the biggest event. And Paul kind of gives a little bit of a, um, a cameo picture of some of the stuff that's going to happen. It's, going to, it's unprecedented. It's unparalleled. Every eye shall behold him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as Paul says in another uh, letter. So it's going to be a remarkable not to be missed. Well, it can't be missed because the King is coming. I think Paul answers this concern by saying a couple of things. The first thing that he does, he says that there is comfort in death. Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Of course, there's going to be natural sorrow if you have been to the graveside. Uh, you will know that sorrow. And here, these people will mourn the loss of a family member, a friend, a fellow believer. But says Paul, and he says, you really must get this, there is the knowledge that something greater than death itself. And it's based upon an all-important doctrine, isn't it? Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so he wants to outline, impact their thinking and their lives with a knowledge that here, as they stand by a graveside, it's not the end. There is hope, there is a future, and there is great blessing. And it's because of all that Jesus has done. And he kind of makes a contrast, in a sense, with the pagans who gather by their death moment, however they do it, and they've got nothing to offer. As the body is laid in the grave or is cremated, however the pagans would have conducted their funerals. They have got nothing to offer. There is no hope. Nothing to say but maybe a superstitious idea. But no certainty because all that they base their hope on is a human-generated philosophy that has no answer for the final moment. And Paul says, we do. Cariad uh, Lloyd is a comedian, and she lost her father to cancer when she was just 15. Uh, he was uh, just age 44 uh, when he met his death. She's just written a book, um, uh, kind of a book, Living with Grief. And I suppose she does it in her own tone as a, a, a comedian. But she says this in the book, at least I read the review. I haven't read the book, but I read the review. And apparently she says in the book this, We live. We die, that's it. She says, isn't it strange and normal? Isn't it awful and ordinary? So in her assessment of the life that she's living, 
in her assessment of having lost her father that she loved and respected uh, just when she was a young teenager, she's come to the conclusion that as she deals with her grief, there is the knowledge that actually there is now nothing after death. And Paul says that's how the pagans live, in one way or another. They have some other superstition. But Paul's answer to the confusion that might be in the minds of the church is that we have a remarkable great hope. We will grieve, but we will grieve with certainty and with hope. And that takes my to the second thing that Paul wants to outline that's going to be a help to them. Firstly, there's comfort in death, but secondly, there is certainty in his coming. And you get then this little flavor of how this is going to come about, or the picture that Paul creates. He expands on the nature of what's going to happen. He doesn't say everything that has to be said, but he says what they need to hear at this point. He is going to say more in his second letter, but this is what they need to know now. And that's what he unpacks, and that's what he shares. He asserts that here is the teaching of Jesus. Some want to argue that uh, Paul gets his uh, teaching from other apostolic sources, or that Paul as an apostle has received direct instruction, or that it is the the teaching of Jesus that uh, Paul is picking up on with the rest of the apostles, understanding what Jesus said. You can go to Matthew 24 when he speaks about the the end of the days and uh, the moment that's going to happen in their history, but also fast-forwarding to what's going to be the day of the Lord right at the end of time, the, the signs of the day, to be ready of the day of the Lord. And there's a flavor of that that you've got in Matthew 24, you've got here in 1 Thessalonians. Be that as it is, Paul comes with this assurance. And the main point is that all believers, living and asleep, will be participants in the great event. That was their main concern. What about those who are dead? Well, listen, Paul says, they are going to be part of this event. He's going to come with his saints. He kind of said that in chapter 3, didn't he? Did they not hear that? I'm going to come with my saints with those that have gone before. So Paul speaks about the fact that they have gone to sleep. Now he's not suggesting that everybody that dies that has kind of gone to sleep, now they're in nothingness, and they're just waiting for the coming of Jesus. And when he comes, they will wake up, and they will go to be with Jesus. No, we read in another scripture, that we're absent in the body, and we're present with the Lord, and he's going to come with his saints. Uh, But clearly, at the end of time, as we understanding the teaching of the Bible, that when Christ comes again, the dead in Christ will be uh, with him. Uh, We're all going to be receiving this uh, new resurrection body, and that's going to be everybody at the end of time. We're all going to be participants in this remarkable event. In any case, they're going to be gathered to meet Jesus. It's going to be visible, it's going to be experiential, it's going to be noticed, it's going to be seen, it's going to be impactful, and it's going to be their awareness that they're with Jesus. There can be nothing greater than that. And they've been living and breathing this truth, the resurrection of Jesus and all that he offers, since they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. 
Previously, they had nothing. They were pagans. They were pursuants of other things. Now there's the riches of truths that is brought to their attention. There's finality. There is certainty uh, for eternity. These are the notes that are being played out in, this, uh, in these verses. And they're to encourage each other with them. So, we've got questions and we've got concerns and there's confusion. Paul outlines the way ahead and he says, you can take hope and you can be encouraged. Speak to one another these things. Equip one another in these things and be blessed. So, what does it look like for you and for me as we come to our day? Well, every time we gather for a funeral of a believer, there's a powerful message being declared. Uh, I was in two minds whether to, to share this, but I think I will. Uh, two years ago, we uh, stood at the graveside of uh, uh, our mother, and uh, we were able to take our 88-year-old father to that graveside. It was COVID. Only the family could gather, and we're standing by the graveside. Uh, the words of committal have happened. We're all quiet around the graveside, and uh, my dad, who is not a kind of a big emotional character, uh, he's there in the silence, he, he, shouts, he shouts out, I'll, I'll see you in heaven. And uh, all the grandchildren, they broke down in tears, well, there's a few tears, and they just couldn't, this was amazing, this moment. But actually, it's the truth, isn't it? My dad knew that mom had gone to be with Jesus. And he knows in his own heart because he loves Christ and Christ has apprehended his life that one day he's going to be with Jesus. He's not so happy that mum went first. But anyway, he's going to go and he's going to be with Jesus. And every time we come to the graveside of a believer and we gather there with our tears and our mourning and our sense of loss, we gather with a rising hope in our hearts we can turn to one another and we can say, thank you, Jesus. We can turn to each other and we can hug each other, whatever we do to express our care for one another, but we can, we can know the blessing that it's not the end. It's a powerful message that's being displayed. There is the pain and the emotional despair. We all handle those moments very differently. But at the passing of a believer... There is a quiet rest in the work of our Savior. There's a hymn uh, written by the Gettys. It goes like this. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ he lives, Christ he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. We sing this stuff. We read this stuff. But as John said in the as he introduced, it's so very easy for us to get caught up in the workaday world. I think the practical outlook here is what Paul is saying, well, listen, Yes, you've got to go and live in the marketplace. You've got to go and uh, keep your houses tidy and all the other stuff. But listen, when you gather around that graveside, encourage one another. When you contemplate the great truths, then take heart 
We've got a king, and the king is coming. And yes, those have passed uh, uh, on before us. They're going to be part of the event as well. And we're all going to be gathered with our king, not one lost. The other matter for application is that as we face the competing messages of the day, and there are many of them, we can come with a total assurance and reassurance that this is not some whim, some fanciful notion, but a living reality. I mean, you read uh, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. If you went out and had a chat with somebody tomorrow and told them this is what's going to happen, they would kind of look at you as if you've got some kind of uh, uh, madness going on. Is that really how it's all going to end? Yes, it's all, it is how it's all going to end. There's going to be a king, and it's Jesus. And he's going to be in complete control. And this is the word of the Lord. And that's what Paul says, doesn't he, uh, early on. This is God's word. And we can take God's word and we can take it with reassurance. And we can apply it with confidence. should fill us then with hope. It should enlarge our hearts in the day of challenge. Whether we're at school, whether we're at work, whether we're at home, in our neighborhoods. This is the word of God. Here we can encourage one another. So when we meet together and we share this word, it's not some philosophy and uh, you can take it or leave it. We're sharing the Scripture, the truth of God. And that's the help to each other. And so it will impact our daily living, which will be outworked in the practical nature of life, designed to give us confidence and reassurance. God's family will be brought in. Nobody will be missing. When all our children were at uh, school, there was uh, one year in the life when they were all at the same school, and uh, now and again, uh, I would go up to collect them uh, from, the, uh, from the junior school. Uh, it was quite a big school, I think it was about 400, and they would all come running out uh, in their blue kind of uh, jumpers and the uh, grey uh, trousers, skirt, whatever, and they would all come out. Now, when you see 400 kids in the same uniform all coming out, you think, well, where's mine? And, uh, and there's lots of kids, uh, and maybe even a kid comes running up to you, but it's not yours, but he's mistaken you for somebody else. And you don't want that one. <laughs> You've got enough with three. And then there's your three. Eventually, they all come out. I'm only looking for three to take my family home. And at the end of time, God is going to bring his family home. It's not for us to consider, well, are they part of the family or are they not part of the family? That's God's great sovereign purpose, whatever happens, but he's going to bring all his children home. He's going to bring them all in, and not one of them is going to be missing. And Paul brings hope and he brings certainty into the question and into the concern. Encourage each other. But the second thing is in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, will be done in time, and that's living in the day. So he sets out the hope. Listen, don't worry. We're all going to be participants. It's going to be a great event. Uh, we won't miss it because we're all going to be there. The next question is, when's it going to happen? The point Paul wants to make is we don't know, but more importantly, how are we going to live in the meantime? What are we going to do as we wait the day? And again, there's a contrast uh, between the pagan or the unbeliever in verse 3, and those of the light. There are those of darkness and those of light. 
And the first thing, Paul gives two pictures about the coming of Jesus. He describes it as a thief in the night, something which is unpredictable. Generally speaking, you don't get much notice uh, from the burglar when he comes to, um, you know, nick everything in your house. He doesn't send you a text to say, I'm going to be there next week uh, about three o'clock, just to let you know, uh, a courteous call for you. Uh, You don't know. It just happens. You go home, hope that hasn't happened, but you go home and somebody's been in that shouldn't have been in. No warning. It's unpredictable. But then he employs a second picture of the expectant mother. If the thief is unpredictable, the expectant mother is inevitable. All things being well, there's a moment when the baby makes an appearance. Suddenly, nature takes its course, and we grab the bag, and we get in the car, and we head to the hospital. Hopefully, we've left enough time. In our case, three children, we left plenty of time. But God blessed us with them, and they came. It was the inevitable. And Paul gives those two pictures about the second coming. So you can't predict it, but it will happen. And the second thing that Paul does in these verses, he gives two outlooks. That being the case, how are you to live? How are you to respond? Um, Verse 4, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are children of light. Verse 6 and following kind of picks up then the how, what are you to be? Let us not sleep. Let's be sober. Let's be awake. It's a call to be alert, a call to be watchful. It's a call to be equipped. And the reason for all of this, why? Well, verse 5 tells us the reason, because they are children of light. That's how they're going to naturally respond now. They are recipients of salvation, verse 9. And they've been set free from God's right and just anger. It's going to be, it's been taken away from them. By implication, they that have deserved that anger have done nothing to avoid it, but another has taken it. The great transaction of the cross is being played out. Jesus takes our sin on the one hand, and on the other, He gives us His righteousness so that we're in right standing with God. So, as as God looks on them, He sees not their sin, but He sees His Son. And that's the only way we're going to stand at the end. When God and Christ judges the whole of humanity. The only way we're going to be standing in His presence uncondemned is because the King is part of our lives and we know His righteousness. It's the only hope. So living in the meantime. So here's the motivation and the impetus and the stimulus for Christ-like living as they await His coming. Don't be distracted. Paul says, don't be deceived, don't be discouraged, think on these things. Well, here we are some 2,000 years later, still waiting, still waiting. Every church age is called to live as if the King is coming. Uh, Peter had to write to uh, the churches And he said, listen, there are those who are saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Right early on there, they're just saying, well, where is He? And ever since, many have been saying, well, where is He? 
But every church age worth its salt, then we must include ours, is living in the expectation that Christ is going to come. It could be in our day. It could be another 20 years. It could be another 100 years. Who knows? My parents, all those years ago, were convinced. No, it's in our day. Here we are. And we might be convinced as we look at the signs of the times and we look at the world that we're living with all this uncertainty, we might be convinced it's going to be now. And that's not a bad outlook. In the sense that actually all ages have been called to live in the light that Christ is coming again. And that's what we do. We get on with life. We build our homes. Uh, we care for our families. We take our holidays. We do all the stuff that God's blessed us with, but hanging loosely onto those things because there's a greater truth. And the greater truth will then influence how we do all the other stuff. So we're waiting. And that practical outworking of our Christian life is going to impact us consciously or unconsciously. How we live, the choices that we make, the actions we take, endeavoring to add to our faith, because one day we're going to meet our Savior. That might sound daunting sometimes. Oh, I'm going to meet Jesus. I don't think I'm ready. I'm a Christian, but I'm not too sure if I'm ready or not. But we're not going to meet him as uh, he's our judge or some kind of a head teacher, but we're going to meet him as a brother, a friend, our loving master, our glorious Savior. As we said earlier, he's going to bring us home. So Paul is calling you and me to live as believers, as followers of Jesus, to seek him, to encourage each other in the words of truth. But just one thing as we come to a conclusion. It could be that this morning you are unsure if you're a follower of Jesus. You are exploring the truths. You are asking the questions. It could be today your eyes will be opened and you see there's a great Savior and you cast yourself upon Him, expressing sorrow over sin and seeking Him to be your rescuer, your redeemer, the one that sets you free, and you are now in Christ, uncondemned. Maybe you're exploring. Maybe it's today you say, Jesus, I want you to be king of my life, and that when he comes, we will rejoice with all the other believers in Christ, for we are His. There used to be a saying, with this I finished, we finished, to be too heavenly minded is to be of no earthly use. The idea being, oh, you just, uh, all you do is talk about heaven or stuff about uh, all those things. I think Paul would teach us that the things of heaven and eternity should dominate our minds so as to practically inform how we live in this day. So, encourage and build one another up and hold to this great truth. The King is coming.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word. We thank you that it's a living word. We thank you that it reaches into our hearts and lives. You are the King. We worship you. And the King is going to come one day. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to be living in anticipation of that. Forgive us for where we falter and fail, but enable us as we live our lives and enjoy what you've given to us, but live them, live them with the aspect that Christ is going to come, and we await that great day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.